good morning everyone. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, the subject of today's talk is really information management and security. So how we're going to run things is I'm going to give you a very brief introduction explaining why we think this is such an important area, a growing area, and quite a difficult one for lawyers. To then secondly, I'm going to run through a brief, briefly some of the key area, uh, laws that apply to this area. And then thirdly, my colleague Andrew Joint uh, is going to run you through some of the standard clauses that we see in agreements and discuss why we think perhaps these may not be adequate given all the, thing, all the changes we're seeing. We'll have a coffee break and then we're going to go through a worked example of a laptop policy and a data loss incident just to see in practice what happens and how you can deal with it and whether or not the terms actually work. So to start off, and I'm sorry it's traditional in these sorts of talks, but to explain why I think information is important, it's fairly self-evident, um, but you know, not so long ago, I think when I first started work, if I'd brought a device like this in and sat down, people would have probably burnt me as a witch. Things have moved on drastically. Um, information is now a key asset of just about every single business that we deal with. Technology has developed so fast that actually it can pretty much do what we want it. We can transfer huge amounts of data very quickly across the world. Uh, we can walk out of offices with data, as we're seeing last year with lots of employee claims of people being fired and taking their data with them. Uh, we can create what we want, we can manipulate it, we can do reports, we can analyse it. I think the key issue is that actually our practical ability to manage information is lagging way behind technology. You know, in the old world, we had files and we knew what to put on them and where to put them and where, well, in an ideal world, uh, what not to keep. Now we tend to just keep everything because it's much easier and we're also keeping a lot more. Well, how much more? You know, each time I do these talks, the graph gets actually slightly more drastic as I update it with the latest research. But the latest research is suggesting that currently we have 1.2 zettabytes of data. I have no idea what that means in practical terms, but it's a big, big number. I've been told it's roughly 250 billion large DVDs, uh, and by 2020 there'll be 35 zettabytes. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, apparently, if you recorded all of human speech ever said, it would be about 42 zettabytes. So it's an extraordinary and enormous amount of data. You know, a lot of it is because we're recording things for YouTube or you know, digital bits of information that require more storage. But on the other hand, 85% of data is held by businesses, approximately. And 60%, you know, on average, each company is keeping 60% more information year on year. We're keeping more and more all the time. You know, one of the key ways of looking at this is, is these terms here. When I was originally doing these talks, I think we used to talk about terabytes as being a big figure. Well, now we've had to come up with new words even to cope with the size and the amount of data we're talking about. You know, why are we keeping this data? Well, you know, almost every single piece of information we think about has rights attached to it, has obligations attached to it, has risks attached to it, and even e uh, an inappropriate email to a colleague, for example. Um, but most organisations that we deal with, by default, seem to just keep everything because it's far too difficult to actually, or it's perceived to be far too difficult to deal with it. It's one of the issues that tends to get brushed under the carpet. Now, often this is bad habits rather than a corporate strategy. And, and the first sort of refrains we tend to hear are that we don't want to lose anything. It's difficult to filter information. It's just easier to keep everything. Well, I was trying to think of why an analogy as to why we think that's a really bad idea. And luckily, the medical profession provides us with one. It's actually called pathological hoarding disorder, or common bridges business strategy. The acquisition of and failure to discard possessions that are useless or of limited value due to the fear of losing things perceived to be important. 
So what are the security risks attached to data? We're going to run through some of the key examples, but you know, here are some facts and figures that I think help exemplify the fact. Last year, over 600 million mobile device devices were sold. Many more of us have got little USB sticks or laptops. We're walking around all the time with a huge or access to vast amounts of information. 88% um, of companies experienced a data loss in the last 12 months, apparently. A lot of this obviously goes unreported. 53% um, of business laptop users carry confidential information. And in this uh, survey, which Ponemon did, 65% of those don't actually protect the data. And the average cost of a significant data breach is now estimated at 4.5 million. And that figure is rising year on year, every year. It's estimated that 67% of ex-employees take data when they leave a job to leverage getting a new job. And again, it's been estimated that over half a billion people have been affected by data loss since 2007. The point is it's happening all the time. It's happening to most of us. And it's affecting almost every company in the marketplace. What sort of data loss or thefts are we talking about? Well, I've just picked some recent examples. Again, I've been doing these talks a long time, and when we first started, you had to scrabble around in the papers to find news stories. It's not a problem anymore. You know, um, the 30th of March, BP lost a laptop. Uh, it related to the claims in the Gulf, probably the last piece of information they wanted to leak out. Um, the laptop was unencrypted, although it was password protected. Um, it was negligently lost by an employee when traveling in the States, and it had 13,000 details of people who were um, claiming, including the claim number, details of the claim, etc., etc., and a highly embarrassing piece of news for a company that's already had a lot of trouble. Um, so negligent loss by employee. Then we have malicious employee theft, if you like. Now, whether you think Bradley Manning is malicious or not is a different issue, but the point is he took um, extraordinary amounts of information from the US security system, SEPRANET, I think it's called, an internal network accessible by high-level security people, although Bradley himself is not actually, is quite a junior um, US military employee, um, with over 250,000 diplomatic cables in it. And furthermore, we're seeing a new trend, you know, WikiLeaks, and places where you can publish this information that may be of general interest to anybody. Um, it, it's endemic. Thirdly, we're seeing losses by outsourced suppliers. Um, one of the most obvious examples is obviously Zurich, uh, who lost a large data set. I think it was 46,000 customer details uh, in an outsourced event in South Africa. Um, what happened was someone transferred an unencrypted disk and it was lost. The trouble for Zurich was it took them a year to work out that it had been lost. They don't know if anything happened to the customers that were on the database or not, and they were fined pretty heavily by the FSA as a result. Fourthly, we're seeing just general malicious acts or hacking. Um, here's one from the 29th of March. Ten senior government member ministers of Australia found that their computers had been hacked and their email accessed, um, allegedly by, um, from sources in China that were looking at mining rights um, allocations and the prices and, and costs and figures and decisions they were making on that basis, despite the fact this is meant to be one of their most secure networks. And lastly, we're seeing actual competitor theft on a much more sort of planned, organized, structured level than I think we've ever seen it before, because it's much easier to do. This particular example is a, a Mrs. Jin, who was arrested at uh, Chicago airport on her way out to Beijing. Uh, they opened her suitcase and she had over a thousand different bits of paper in it um, and also lots of um, USB drives. And what they've estimated is that the value of that information in her suitcase was $600 million of development work from Motorola about their new phones, plans, networks and systems, which was being transported to a Chinese, allegedly, to a Chinese supplier who's now being sued. 
and you know this stuff is, is going on all the time it's, it's within and around us it's our employees negligently or maliciously doing it third parties actively seeking to do it or outsource suppliers so what do we learn from that well really information is increasingly available and accessible it can be more efficiently stored and used and it's of increasing value and importance on the other hand we're seeing a rise in the numbers and severity of data losses that graph I showed you of the amount of data, also funnily enough, it's pretty similar for the amount of public news stories about data being lost or stolen, probably the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing increasing media coverage and awareness of data losses. You know, every individual is probably much more aware of whether what company data people hold about them, how valuable it is. Um, we're seeing increasing amounts of law, fines, regulation, litigation, not surprisingly. You know, politicians follow what happens in the news. And we're seeing a lot of bad PR and we're also seeing that it can have a genuine impact on businesses when data is lost. This is genuinely an issue which is rising up board agendas and which we're getting talked to about more and more. So then what laws do we have in this area? I've picked out probably four or five of the key ones to think about. We have some protections, the Computer Misuse Act which is updated in 2006. Effectively you have three main offences uh, which deal with things such as viruses. They're very broadly interpreted so it could also mean getting illegal access to a computer copying someone's password, um, generating a password that allows you to get access, or creating a malicious um, piece of software. It was also adapted further to, to cover people who create hacking materials or enable other people to hack by designing tools for hacking. <clears throat> and it was also further expanded to deal with denial of service attacks on networks, where people send in thousands of bits of information to close down a network. It's interpreted widely, it gives you criminal protection from these sorts of actions, and a company can be vicariously liable for it. So if you have an organisation that is planning these sorts of attacks, that organisation itself can be liable. It's pretty simple. It does what it, do, it says on the tin. Then we have theft of data. Now that's quite <coughs> a difficult area in law. Um, there was a case with poor Mr Moss, an engineering student studying at Liverpool University, who took an exam paper and two or three weeks before the exam to copy the contents, try and bone up and get himself a good result and then return the paper so that no one knew it was stolen. Uh, the Liverpool University authorities took him to court and the judge said, well, actually, that's not theft. He took the paper and he returned it. And the information on that paper is not property for the purposes of the Theft Act. He hasn't taken anything tangible. It's not even in intangible in his view. So therefore, taking a laptop is theft, but obviously taking information on it is not theft. Lastly, we have confidential information, <coughs> common law right, obviously available to all of us, a very broad and useful right which has been developed through the courts over many, many years and has lots of nuances, but the key principles are obviously the information itself has to be confidential in nature to be protected. Now, what does confidential in nature mean? Well, essentially it means it's just not in the public domain, nothing more than that. There are some nuances to that, so for example, if I aggregate information that is in the public domain in a clever useful way, that can attract uh, the law of confidence and still be protected even though lots of information within it is in the public domain. And secondly, it's got to be disclosed in circumstances importing an obligation of confidence. <coughs> uh, here's the dictum for the, the key case in the area. So basically a reasonable man standing in the shoes of the re recipient would, would have realised upon reasonable grounds that the information was confidential. There are certain carve-outs carve in this. If, if you give it to someone in, in a public place or if you treat it in such a way that it's not confidential, you might find the information is not perceived to be confidential. And also, most importantly, in the employee relationship. <coughs> During employment, there's an obligation of confidence implied 
after termination of an employment contract, there are quite specific rules about what may or may not be confidential. And you can get caught out thinking that something would be confidential with an ex-employee when it's not. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of these because I think the points are that it's quite a useful right which applies um, generally and can be a very good way of protecting your information. It's also enforceable against the recipient of any subsequent third party. <clears throat> so the person that's actually taken the data gives it to the third party. That third party can also be liable under the law of confidence, even where such party had no knowledge of the confidential nature of the information. So those are sort of basic protections we have. And then we also have some obligations under law. The key one is probably Principle 7 of the Data Protection Act. I'm not going to go through the Data Protection Act in detail because I assume most of you are very familiar with the contents. But Principle 7, let's remind ourselves, says an organisation must take appropriate technical and organisational measures against unauthorised or unlawful processing of personal data and against accidental loss or destruction of or damage to personal data. It's a very broad and generic obligation which companies often struggle to work out what it means. We've got some um, ICO jurisprudence which tells us what they think it means. What it means is it's subjective depending on the type of business and the sensitivity of the information involved. In other words, every business has to look at what it does and the nature of the information it holds and the harm that might cause if leaked and decide what's an appropriate level of security. Secondly, it means organisational measures. It means perhaps appointing someone with, senior, with a senior level of security to take charge of security issues within a business. It means planning a review or an audit, perhaps looking at the information you have and deciding whether or not it's been properly protected and constantly reviewing that. What you would perceive as basic common sense organisational measures in respect of something that's quite a significant issue. Thirdly, staff. You have to vet them before you hire them, make sure they're reliable people of, of the right type. You have to train them in uh, methods of security, explain what your policies are, if, particularly if they're dealing with confidential information. You probably have to help them if they're given a laptop, train them in using it, explain where it can and can't be used, um, show them how to turn on the security settings, regularly update those and explain to them why it's being done, <clears throat> and continue to train them throughout the life or their term with you. And last, we have physical security. So in other words, locking files, locking offices, working out who has access to them, recording that. These are often the issues we sort of forget are covered by the same provision. The one I think most of us focus on is computer security itself, and we have some helpful um, arguments here. It's not state-of-the-art technology that's necessarily required. You're allowed to take the costs of, Im um, of imposing this security standard into account, but it must be appropriate for the harm that could result from the nature of the information being lost. It does mean looking at business continuity and disaster recovery plans, um, installing reasonable anti-hacking software and procedures. We know now that the ICO has said uh, you've got to encrypt uh, customer data in portable media such as a laptop. That's now a requirement. And also you've got to make sure you keep up to date with what's available in the market and the sophistication of attacks that are also being seen. So basically what, what we're saying is it's practical measures and security standards and actually it's up to each business to assess itself look at the information it's got, decide what it needs to keep, and make sure it keeps it securely and safely. There's no sort of generic opt-out, and they don't specify particular standards you can just point to. However, we have ISO standards, which can be helpful in this regard. <clears throat> ISO standards are really a methodology by which a, a business can look at the information it has, look at the available security out there, and ensure that it meets the bar by assessing at each point whether or not it meets the ISO standard and implementing reasonable security to get there. 
The point is they're not, they're not again, generic standards in that you have to apply it to your own business. You have to go through the pain and effort of actually looking at what might be appropriate. So my concept of ISO 27000 might be very different from yours, a different business that has different types of information. It's not a generic standard, although it can be very helpful. And what we're actually seeing is greater policing and penalties all round for breach of these sorts of provisions. Um, as you well know, I think at the beginning of this year, the ICO was given extra powers and an ability to fine up to £500,000 for particular types of breaches, for example. Other obligations. Not all businesses, but many are covered by regulators. I've picked out the FSA because I think we've had some interesting cases in that regard. Again, what you don't see is clearly specified standards that you must meet. What you have is generic obligations that you then have to look at and assess and decide on an individual basis. The two key principles they tend to point to are two and three. Um, we've also seen a paper in 2008 explaining in more detail what these principles might mean in the IT security world. They produced a paper last year for small businesses and firms on helping and assisting them apply these standards in terms of IT security. And the FSA has also said on several occasions, you know, it's a priority for them. They, they don't see it as an area where businesses can be excused from, from complying. You need to spend time, money and effort on security and think carefully about the levels you apply. Well, how do we know this? Zurich Insurance, the example I mentioned earlier, um, it's the highest fine we've had thus far because it was one business and one incident and also it was discounted by 30% because they, they owned up to it um, and they went early. HSBC, again we had un unencrypted customer details being sent in the post, the 3 million fine. Norwich Union, um, poor telephone customer ID systems, so people were phoning up, um, getting one piece of information from the help desk and then phoning back an hour later and taking money transferring it from accounts using two or three quite simple bits of information and playing the help desk system if you like. And then nationwide they had poor systems in relation to a lost laptop. Again it took them a year to actually report that the laptop was lost. So what we're actually seeing is quite basic things. These aren't sort of rocket science hacking protection here, it's employees losing bits of information or laptops and what the obligations tell us are quite woolly. It's very, it's very, there's no particular standard you can point to. What you have to do is you have to take the time and trouble yourself to implement a standard, knowing full well that the regulator or the legislator will look in hindsight at what you've done and decide whether or not it was reasonable. So I think I've just talked to my conclusion slide, but essentially there's no silver bullet here in the law. There's no way that you can just point to a standard and comply with it. You've got to take charge of the pro problem. You've got to actively review and assess the risks in your own business. You've got to develop a strategy for managing the data that's, that's suitable for you and your business. And actually a multifaceted approach is needed. And I used to be in-house and faced with this task before, and it's not a lawyer cannot deal with this alone. You have to sit hand in glove with the IT teams and decide what is a reasonable level. You probably need to talk to the business managers about what they actually do with the data, who uses it, where do they take it. It's got to be practical, otherwise it won't work. So what you need to do is actually pull together practical policies and procedures, <clears throat> keep them updated and impose them on everybody via contract, whether it's an outsourced supplier, an employee, a temporary contractor or any third party you're dealing with. And then you've got to review them, update them, police them, train and penalise wrongdoers, and that will put you in the best position to be legally compliant. So in other words, we're talking a bit like licensing of data, we're talking actually about metered access, imposition of clear security obligations at each and every stage where people are dealing with your data. 
making the data subject to contract at some point because the law may help you but it will only help you after the data is leaked. What you really need to do is take preventative action and impose your own standards on people. That means clear security obligations being explicitly drafted into a contract in detail saying what they can do with the data and what they can't and reserving all other rights. Therefore you'll reduce the practical risk of a leak. You'll increase your chance of compliance because we'll be able to point to the regulator or a legislator and say look we've thought about this. This is our standard. We've imposed it on everyone. Either they met it, in which case your standard needs to be raised if data is lost, or more likely, actually, they probably didn't meet the standard. But did you police it? Did you look at it? Did you train people? You can therefore reduce your reliability and potential PR damage. So the key legal role, as always, is actually regulating relationships, both intergroup for transfer of data, employees in terms of the data you keep about them and the data they ask, you ask them to manage on behalf of the company, by putting that in the employment contract, the employment handbook, and imposing policies on them. And then externally, with customers, you've got to have a clear contract with your customer explaining what data you're going to take, where you're going to keep it, and what security standards will apply, and also what you'll do, perhaps, if the data's lost. And lastly, without suppliers and outsourcers. Um, Andrew's <coughs> kind of going to deal with that bit, the difficult one. Thank you very much. Um, okay, thanks, Paul. So, I think the key sort of takeaway I took from that was, um, so Paul's, one of Paul's stats was the Gartner stat about 88% um, of people suffered, or businesses suffered data loss in the last 12 months. So nine out of 10 people or businesses represented in this room, according to their stats, will have suffered a data loss incident in the last 12 months. Won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, I think what that means is probably because you're here, you might well have been involved in dealing with that. And as Paul has just sort of said, are you interested in common law concepts of confidentiality? Probably not. Or the Computer Misuse Act and trying to bring actions under the Computer Misuse Act? No, because the standard of criminal prosecution for unreasonable doubt, is it really relevant to what you're dealing with? No. Actually, what you're interested in if you're dealing with those events, uh, you know, someone losing a laptop, is a couple of things. One of which is your regulatory commitments, be it the DPA, probably all applying to information. Is it the FSA if you're authorised or some other professional body, law society if it's us? The other thing you're really interested in are those contractual obligations you put in place, be it by policy, your employment contract, your contract to your third-party outsourcers if they're providing your IT system, etc. And that's what we wanted to have a quick look at through some of, some of the standard wording and just started to think, how does standard wording work to protect us? So in any sort of outsource supplier terms, if I'm buying any sort of form of IT by a full outsourcing system integration, someone coming in to run a part of my IT, there's generally a number of provisions within those types of agreements that I'm interested in, which I know help me protect my information, help me understand where my information is going and being used, help make sure that I put in place those appropriate security requirements, put in place the reasonable skill and care and due diligence to make sure it showed all those, uh, comply with all those obligations the law says I should start trying to comply with. And those really are listed here, and things will be probably pretty, pretty, uh, pretty au fait with confidentiality, DPA clauses, Obligations to report loss, compliance with regulations, sort of warranties, how do we deal with liabilities, governance, backup, uh, audit rights, change control rights, etc. Those, sort of those sort of clauses and concepts that you know, people who are looking at IT contracts are fairly familiar with. And also a lot of these concepts, confidentiality in particular applies to things where we start looking at policies. So we'll go through an employment laptop policy a bit later on. But focusing on our contracts with our suppliers, let's think about standard confidentiality wording for a start. 
you know, what would that normally start talking about? It starts putting a duty, a contractual duty of confidence. So forget Coco and Clark and Mars and your duty of confidentiality arising under common law. This is contractual duty of confidence you're trying to place on someone you're giving information to. First thing we're thinking of always is, you know, well, what information does that apply to? How is that defined within the, um, the contract or the documentation? You know, usually is it limited to, you know, confidential information, meaning all materials, projections, um, reports, contracts, etc., related to Project X. You know, and actually, is it just about Project X? So what is the scope of the author? What is the scope of the information I'm giving you, which I deem should be protected by the duty of confidentiality, the contractual duty of confidentiality I'm trying to put on you, be it by contract, be it by employment contract, by policy. What are the other some of the other key obligations that we would normally expect to see within your confidentiality provisions? Well. Keeping all confidential information secure and protected. So a couple of examples of text we've seen, and you probably might recognise similar types of wording and NDAs you've signed or you've seen your businesses sign or you've been provided or you've given out. Keep all confidential information secure and protected against theft, damage or loss or unauthorised use access. Secure and protected. I mean, I, and I really understand why these words are used, but I think when we start delving into what that actually means, and if someone actually has a laptop taken from the boot of their car, it, is that because the car was locked? Is that secure and protected? You know, what, where where is the line? Where is the standard? And where is that obligation? And what does that mean? Because, you know, in certain ways we're forced to use generic language because we need these documents to, you know, to apply to a multitude of situations. We can't all spend our days looking at NDAs. That your business is not going to thank you for dealing with that. It needs you to do other work. But also, has is what we've got as our standard we push out there fit for purpose? Not to use or authorize or permit the use or disclosure. Blah 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 blah. Anything other than the sole purpose is the performance of rights or obligations under the agreement. So I've got a confidentiality obligation related to types of information. Andrew, I've defined the information I want. I'm happy that it's kept secure and protected, but I can do what they like for it in relation to the obligations under the agreement. Now, um, generally obligations under the agreement are pretty broad ranging. That's why you're bringing a supplier in to do a whole host of things. And, and how protective, therefore, if you're saying that anything you need to do to be able to comply with your obligations under the agreement, you know, including invoicing, including being able to resell and change, uh, not just the performance of the services specifically, how, how clear and useful are those kind of clauses in relation to what you're trying to achieve via that confidentiality wording? Um, so we have the vagueness put in place by our regulators, vagueness put in place and unhelpfulness potentially by our common law, but actually Therefore, we're having to rely on our contractual documentation, contracts with suppliers or our policy. But actually, we then need to turn the focus into our wordings we're putting in place in our contracts. Because suddenly, if I start thinking, uh, if I've suddenly faced with an event, a data loss, my, my outsourcer in South Africa has lost the CD-ROM, I'm now looking at this and thinking, right, I'm going to get you. Hang on a sec, what does this allow me to do? Because actually, they're allowed to maybe use it for the obligations under the agreement. You know, have I sort of waived their rights and their ability because actually they kept it secure and protected? It was just bad luck. You know, they did all the right things, but actually it still just happened because of a malicious employee. And how is my clause? Is it sufficient? And and what sort of things do I start building in to start making it sufficient? Well, I have to think about the standards of care I'm going to start applying because, you know, is it care? I you know care that I would take in consideration of my own organisation. That's an interesting one if nine out of 10 businesses have suffered a data loss event, because you know, suddenly we all appreciate, if we're saying you will, you will keep it to the same standard as I keep mine, and then I'm also saying, the world at large is saying, I also know that 90% of us suffer a data loss every 12 months. 
suddenly actually how strong a commitment is it taking something and keeping it in no less a greater standard of care than the one I put in place because I have failings as well reasonable skill and care again reasonable is a great word we, you know lawyers absolutely love it but an objective standard is is just that and it's objective standard based on what the man in the clapham omnibus working in your business might decide is the right standard for you to have in place there's no certainty about what that means until you start putting yourself into the shoes of the person making that objective standard and actually similar really concepts of good industry practice because you know what is suddenly ask the question of what is the industry that you're trying to compare that you come in the middle of the performance obligations of ISO standards are also really useful, but they are, as Paul was explaining, ISO is a system, you know, ISO or BS7799 or its replacement by ISO 27001 or whatever it was. Those standards are great, but they are a methodology by which you come up with your own standard. And at that point, you're starting to put something in place. If you follow through the ISO standards, you know, 27000 and put in place something which suits your business, then that starts to make a bit more sense because you've thought about what's important to you then you've transposed that obligation directly onto someone else. So the question really is, will that standard be sufficient for your business uh, in those particular circumstances of your business, your industry, and how you're treating? Because generic legal language of, you know, hold secure, hold it to a standard no worse than how we hold ours, etc. they only get you so far. And don't get me wrong, they're a lot better than not having any confidentiality protection in contract. But, but of course, it's not, they're not a panacea. They're not a save all just by using a, you know, general language. So what I thought now I'd do is sort of maybe run through uh, an example of a sort of type of IT contracting arrangement um, and, and, and work through some of the clauses within those agreements and see how they help with those appropriate standards of skill, uh, appropriate standards of security that DPA 7 puts in place, or if you're FSA authorised, the reasonable skill and due diligence that you have to put in place, and try and understand how those typical terms start applying to our information management and security considerations. So I took cloud because it's IT and we've got to talk about the cloud in 2011. It's the most important thing we have to say at every couple of weeks. So cloud computing, sure you all know, but basically what it means is everything that was being done on your computer within your estate, within your business, um, managed maybe by you from someone else, but was done physically in somewhere you understood. Actually, that data storage or that software or that operating system is now hosted over the cloud, over the internet, wherever your supplier wants to host it, wherever they've got data center stroke centers Typically, those data centers are not in places like the UK because uh, re, uh, um, um, real estate's expensive. You know, um, employment costs are expensive. And if I want to run something like this, I want to go somewhere where the land is cheap, employment's cheap, my environmentals and such as the electricity, et cetera, is cheap. So they're all over the world. And a part of the efficiencies of a cloud system is that it can transport it wherever it wants. So we've got a system, you know, not that uncommon now. A lot more people are thinking about cloud computing or forms of it, taking information, putting it via the internet wherever we want to go. One of the challenges that that gives us as businesses in relation to our information management and security issues, and, and these aren't just cloud-based businesses. This is if you're outsourcing to really most forms of your IT system. Well, you've got, you know, in cloud, you've got a total reliance on the internet. And how does that impact on your data loss, your ability to recover data, get hold of data if the internet disappears, doesn't work. Um, you've got a large amount of your data, you're shipping an awful lot of it to be done, processed by a third party in the cloud. And, and generally, I think most information, most data will contain large amounts of personal data, whether you like it or not, if you don't look at it. Um, there's an increased potential for reliance on service provider for information management and security because they're doing it all at their premises or at their locations. So it's not something that they're saying, can you come into our premises and run our server, our infrastructure for us? It's it's over to you, you run this building, it's up to you how you do it, and then you've got to worry about how they're doing it. 
And, and lastly, really, in a, in a challenge, in particularly to cloud computing, actually, is one which is it's a one-to-many model. If you're buying outsourced services, you're paying a bit of a premium for a bespoke product, generally. It's a bit more commoditized these days than it used to be. But generally, you're buying a fairly bespoke product if you're outsourcing. I have these requirements. You will meet them and do it in this way. If I'm buying a cloud-based service, it's a one-to-many model. Um, so I am buying whatever you're offering. The fact that you offer it to me, you offer it also to all your 10,000 other customers because that's how that model works. You can't have too much configuration, um, extra additional policies, etc. because you know, your efficiencies are, in, are in, in the fact that you all do it in the same way. So they're the challenges that that kind of contracting and that kind of service delivery produce. So the internet, for example, if I'm transporting information over the internet, no, uh, I think 2006, the last one I've read, anyway, about 1% of internet traffic goes via satellites, about 99% goes via the cables. And this is physically what the cables are, I think this was last year. Um, and they're building some new ones all the, all the time, actually. But, you know, there are some certain specific points of absolute um, uh, points of failure. And these have been a classic one just here. We've had ships' anchors go through cables just there, cutting off the internet supply into Asia for uh, a good deal of time, about three days completely down. Uh, where else have we had some troubles? Well, obviously, recent um, earthquakes, etc., have caused some issues around the connectivity just in these um, areas around here. So the internet is an infrastructure which has points of failure. Now, it's very well designed to make sure there's very few of them, but there are some, and that's an absolute reliance if we're transporting information over this infrastructure. What can happen, it's a great story last week, um, a woman who was out chopping wood, cut through the cables, cut off the internet for Georgia and Armenia. Um, <laughs> that, there she is with Saw, but I literally brought down the internet in Georgia and Armenia. Now, if my data center happened to be pictured over there, and I had an obligation to get hold of that data within 24 hours, and the internet's turned off, the internet's turned off. It's you know I potentially can't get it. Other or see what happened in Egypt a couple of months ago. Mubarak just turned off the internet for three or four days. Just couldn't. There was no net access, and if I, if my information is being delivered, stored, and I need to access it from there and I have a requirement to access it because I need to provide it for regulatory reasons, I need it for my business, I need it to function, how is my information management obligation met by the internet? And, and, and another issue really, which is about re risk and reputation, I mean, a, an interesting story, a couple of years old now actually, um, Sidekick operated a mobile phone, uh, it was a T-Mobile mobile phone Sidekick, it had a couple of interesting stories, one of which was it's the one that Paris Hilton's voicemail was hacked on, second one was this, which is a lot less interesting, but the fact that the low, all the customers, it was a, one of those machines where it let you upload all your pictures, first child, etc., stored all the information in the cloud. Absolutely great. Everyone's storing all their world, all their pictures, all their photographs, all their contacts, no actual, no copy on their computer, all done in the cloud. Um, phone went down, lost it all. They're having to email all their customers and say, uh, really sorry, uh, a cloud burst, I think that's what it described as, uh, has wiped it all out. If you don't turn your phone off and your battery doesn't die in the next four hours, you probably might save it. If not, it's all gone. A lot of very annoyed people mm. for which they said, here's $100. Mm. Sorry about that. Now, the interesting thing was actually the cloud-based part, the bit which was storing the photos and the contact information, was uh, provided by Microsoft. Danger, as a Microsoft subsidiary took over a few years ago. So the subsidiary, you know, cocked up. They're the ones who lost all the information. But T-Mobile, they're the ones who suffered the reputational damage. This phone was dead in the water when those incidents happened. They pulled it from the US market about six months later because trust has gone. It's a massive, it's not, it doesn't say in these stories, but it does if you scroll down a bit further. But no one thinks about it as a Microsoft stroke danger issue. It's all about the T-Mobile psychic phone done. 
And, and that's the problem. If we are trusting third parties to do things in, in mediums such as the internet or where we've got reliance on someone else in relation to our data, we carry the, you know, we as the party who take that information carry that reputational risk, not really our service suppliers. You know, Zurich's another good example. The outsourced supplier lost the disk. Zurich in the UK is the person who got fined. Um, so how do some of these IT contracting concepts work within, uh, um, you know, things like the regulatory environment Paul was talking about? So DPA, again, so we're talking about personal data, names and addresses, anything else that identifies living individuals, email addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses have all been found to be personal data in certain circumstances. So unless you're literally just sending numbers across the board, it's pretty unlikely you're not. It's pretty likely you're dealing with personal data. You've always got to be worrying about the Data Protection Act. How does that work in a, in a concept such as a cloud computer and outsourcing and offshore outsourcing? Well, you know, the principles which say what I can do with that information, how I can process that information to use the language of the app, say, you know, principle eight, I can't do so outside of the EEA, the European Economic Area, all the EU countries plus Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland, I think. Um, I can't process outside of the EEA without certain protections being in place. I can if it's uh, Australia, Israel, Argentina and the Isle of Man. I think, and a couple of others, and I can if I've made sure I've got adequate contractual security protections in place, basically, is what the Act says. Um, now, that's interesting because, actually, if I am starting to use a cloud-based provider where they send me information wherever they like in the world, well, it's pretty likely that Argentina, Australia, Isle of Man aren't the places that their data centres are located in. Therefore, I've got to rely on the fact that I've got appropriate contractual protections in place to be DPA Principle 8 compliant. How easy is that to do? Um, well. Again, uh, how can you easily force those obligations onto your contractor in your contracts? And that's, that's an obligation on you to make sure you've done so because you're in charge of that information. Um, what other rights? Uh, well, the, the, the DPA also says uh, you have to process in accordance with the rights of data subject under the DPA. And generally, of course, what that means is you're getting consent. Now, consent for most types of information, which is pretty standard, the names and address stuff, can be implied, but it generally has to be informed. So what it means is you don't have to physically get absolute signatures to say, I consent to all of this. But it does mean that people can only impliedly give consent when they've been given enough information. Now, if Paul gives me his contact details and I say, thanks so much, I'm going to put it into the cloud, I don't think that's informed consent. Because I need to tell him that I'm going to put it into a situation where it's going to be sent to a number of different locations at any one different time. And I think ideally you're going to be telling people exactly where those kind of locations or the countries and territories with that information are likely to be in. Now, this is one of those areas where we haven't got strong guidance from the ICO, and the technology is probably slightly ahead of where the regulation is just at the moment. But I think it's one of those things where you start thinking, is this kind of computing, and is this kind of IT contracting suitable for my information, for example? Outsourcing slightly different, of course, because if I'm outsourcing to a delivery centre in Mumbai or Chennai, I know the location of that delivery centre. I can audit it because it's always going to be done in that situation. I can also go in for site visits. I can ensure that those kind of protections are in place. These kind of delivery models are slightly different because, as I say, it can be anywhere and they do change at multiple times you know, within half a second because the, the efficiencies of the low cost and the fact that you know, these, the provider can do it from wherever they like. Um, so there are some options, absolutely. It's not all problems. Providers are understanding that. They're saying, okay, we'll just be EEA-based data centers. Therefore, you've got that compliance in that kind of way. Um, but, it, but it's just really a question of thinking, before I put stuff into an environment, to an operating or supplier environment, how, is it the right kind of environment for the sort of, sort of information I'm thinking about? Confidentiality. Well, we talked a little bit already about normal confidentiality clauses and how they work. I mean, a good example of a, of a, of a clause which might not work in a scenario such as a cloud computing environment is 
The obligations set out in this clause shall not apply to information which has become publicly known. Again, pretty, pretty standard carve-out from a confidentiality provision within a contract for fuels and IT services. I provide you this, you keep it confidential, secure, I've told you what standard to use, but it doesn't apply if it's become publicly known. That's an interesting concept when I'm talking about pushing stuff via the internet. Because if I push something unencrypted via the internet, I, you know, I think there's a pretty strong argument that that's put into a public domain. And therefore I'm thinking to, to make sure that this clause doesn't stop my information having a due, contractual duty of confidence applied to it, I've got to make sure that it's, I'm putting specific obligations either on myself or someone else that it's encrypted to the right level of encryption because I can't just push it out there and expect my standard clauses to work. Um, other things, other sort of protections we put in place on our information management, well, DR, you know, we normally ask to put a, a, a traditional a sort of a DR disaster recovery plan in place. Again, what you're saying is I expect certain things to happen and you to do certain things in disaster recovery events and scenarios and have sort of different types of fail-safes, etc. Well, again, that one-to-many model, that fact that we're asking this business who provides the same, exact the same service to 10,000 people, me trying to say that you need to do something in a certain way, isn't really going to work because they're, if, if they're going to be able to do that, it's going to come at significant cost for you because they've got to change their business operation. Um, again, what else do we use in contracts to imply duties and obligations in relation to information management and security? Well, we use warranties, strong contractual promises which have some teeth. You know, typically those teeth are damages, but at least they have some teeth, maybe a termination right. What do we put in place? Good industry practice. That's a tricky one in cloud. The industry, I'd say, is probably only starting to become what you might even consider mature you know what is good industry practice in an industry when no one can really tell you exactly what the standards are there aren't such thing as industry standards it doesn't really mean much and i think reasonable skill and care is and it is in a similar concept objective standards of reasonable skill and care in a, in a in an industry which is still really only just growing microsoft are only just having the posters in bank station about it would tell me that they're difficult ones to rely on. You're, you're not going to get someone to say they will comply with applicable laws when their delivery model is such that they can be based all over the world because that's a million different types of laws for them as a business. That's a risk they're not going to take on contractually. Probably, you might find suppliers who do, but probably not. Meeting your customer requirements, that's not how they sell these types of services. This is what we do. Does this meet your requirements or not? In conformance with, you know, I, I'd like you to perform the service in conformance with my technical specification. No, that's not how a one-to-many model works. You know, these sort of concepts, a typical warranty you might put in place to protect your information, you know, even if they give you these couple of things, they don't really mean anything potentially, and that's your risk in using something like that. That's, that's why we have to analyse what our standard clause might say and start thinking, is this applicable for my information in the environment I'm trying to use it in? Slightly conscious of time. So, again... What else can I do? Well, easy. I've got an InfoSec policy. I'm going to flow it down onto them. You know, please comply with your processing and performance of the services will comply with my, my security standards and policies attached at Schedule X, just like this clause does here. Again, really easy way for you to make sure you've, enhanced, you've, you've passed on your compliance obligations onto them. But again, that, that, that your standard isn't something they're interested in. They'll tell you what they are doing and how they look after things. And you have to take the obligation to understand is that compliant with how I expect my information to be treated? And where's the delta? Where's the difference between how I say it should be treated and how you should be treated? Because if I want to force my compliance obligation on them, if I want to say that everything I give you has to be treated and locked in a separate room, etc., then you're, you're, the cost you're paying for it will exponentially increase because that is not how these systems are designed to be worked. And that's you losing, you're starting to lose your, your efficiencies. And of course, trying to flow down your obligations you know, such as if you're, you know, CISC, if CISC rules apply and MIFID is, uh, the FSA is interested in these, 
or if you're a government department and you're trying to flow on your CES GE obligations, actually are probably very inconsistent with what a general cloud provider is going to give you. Um, audit rights, again, really common example of being able to put in a, a, a clause which says, I really want to be able to come in and audit to check you're doing things properly. So not only do you have to do things properly, but I have a right to come in and check that you are doing things properly. I want to audit, be able to audit wherever, you know, come into your premises, check the securities in place, check you're looking after my data. Very standard clause, pretty con uh, common in outsourcing agreements and a lot of other agreements, software licensing, etc. But again, how relevant is that? when we don't know where these places can be and they change all the time. If you know Paul gives me his memo to store into the cloud somewhere, I could store it wherever I like and I could change where that location is or have it in multiple locations at any one time because that's how those systems work. And the audit right, if you can, if you can have it, is pretty worthless, but unlikely you're even going to get someone who says, you know what, I have 10,000 different customers in my data center, please come and have a look around because they're not going to, because that's in breach of everyone else's confidentiality obligation. So you know, how realistic is using audit as a tool that protects? Um, exclusion of losses, I think the key one really in terms of your contractual liabilities of protecting yourself is obviously you know, so, some of these heads of losses and the uh, liabilities you're looking for, breaches of confidentiality, breaching of the, the DPA or the FSA, loss of data, etc. They, they're key heads of loss that you're likely to suffer. If you're chucking intangible data, you know, the ones and zeros that make up your prime business information into an environment where you don't know potentially where it is because they can't tell you, where you only know the security obligations in relation to it because they've um, they're, they're the ones they give you, what happens when those are breached? And actually, be very careful about your traditional carve-out clause, the exclusion of loss clause, because, you know, it's almost treated as standard that suppliers won't give you loss of data clauses for an exclusion of loss on an indirect or direct loss basis. But, but, but what does that mean? If, I, if I'm giving you data and you lose my data, or I can't access it because somebody in Armenia has cut through with a saw on, onto the uh, internet pipe, and I can't recover losses for loss of data, what else can I recover? How, how have I got any contractual protection in relation to the information I've given you? You know, that, how, how valid is your typical exclusion clause um, in relation to the kind of losses I, you know, I want to recover? Goodwill and reputation, well, that's slightly different. You know, how, how realistically can I make a case for recovering goodwill? You know, that, that's kind of a risk that businesses potentially have to bear. But loss of data, really? You know, carving that out on a direct loss basis? Um, so yes, the, uh, I think the key thing, so I've just, just before we break for coffee, I think we'll, we'll set up our case study, but the key thing that, that we're interested in is really understanding before we put things into any IT environment, be it our own internal, what protections have we got in place, be it our third party outsourcing, via cloud computing system, you know, whatever we're using, putting in places, understanding that pre-contractual data review of understanding what we're actually going to be processing. Because if it is, you know, back office, information, not personal data, uh, nothing particularly business critical, then the internet risk might be slightly, you know, not, not so worried about that, Andrew. Data protection isn't going to apply, thanks very much. It's not a significant outsourcing for, you know, MISC, uh, CISC purposes. Therefore, it's okay. I haven't got to worry about some of this stuff. But if it is, you know, I've got to think about the damage and the risk caused and how I treat it. And, um, you know, and then I need to assess whether the environment I'm putting into is suitable. Is the cloud suitable for all type of data, for example? No, I don't think it is. I don't think you'll find many regulators say, you know, the um, Article 29 Working Party, the sort of the EU-wide DP body have sort of said, don't quite think the cloud's ready for a lot of data protection issues just yet. The FSA are really keeping very strong about it because they, they don't think it is. Um, but it's not suitable yet, but it will be at some point. People will get it right. People are moving data centers within the EEA already to understand that the DPA risk can be mitigated, etc. So it'll get there. But it's understanding whether it's suitable just at the moment for what you're trying to do. 
you know, maybe I need a bespoke outsourcing which doesn't include an offshore element, for example, because that is that's the sort of information I'm dealing with. Um, standard standard provisions really understanding that on a lot of these newer models you're looking at standard terms and and what you're going to have to do is look at supplier standard terms and understand how useful and and relevant they are to you and where's the difference between you what you expect and have decided is reasonable and appropriate compared to what they're about to offer and really it comes down to pre-cloud filtering I think an, an awful lot of uh, a, a lot of awful lot of people just think well I'm going to chuck you know, I've done. I've, I've got my pathological uh, hoarding disorder. I've stored it all, and I'm just going to pass it all over, and that doesn't really work in a lot of outsourcing environments because you, you know, you can't just filter everything across because then no one is going to take on all the risk for everything you give them. So that obligation on you is um, looking at the standard terms that you're getting, you know, and saying actually how does this work? There is an evolution in standard terms going on. I think you know, previously no suppliers in any sort of document hosting solution would give you any form of SLA related to internet availability. For example, Google are different, Google are starting to. Now they can because they own 30% of the infrastructure for the internet, so they understand availability and they're prepared to give you three nines now for availability of information, for example. So it's, so it's an evolving process. But anyway, what does, what does that conclude really about our strategy? Well, the, the key thing really is identify what we need to keep. We need to keep what's needed securely. Um, and enable it to exploitation at the fullest, and that's the key thing. We've, I've just, you know, I've just spent oh, 20 minutes talking about risk, but also you need to be able to exploit this information. This is core stuff. Be able to make money on this data. Um, you need to, be, but deleting what isn't needed is really a really useful point of your strategy because it, it means that you, you start reducing the number of issues you have with all of this. Increasing compliance and business efficiency, uh, you know, can reduce the risk and the cost. So doing some hard work up front and understanding the type of information you have kept and what you can do with it does reduce that risk and cost. Um, and I think from my point, really, the ensure all contractual policy terms accurately reflect strategy. So actually, don't just use that boilerplate, be it the boilerplate NDA or the boilerplate outsourcing agreement or the standard terms that you know somebody's just given you because uh, it, you only start looking about how appropriate they are when something's gone wrong. But I think more and more, you, you know, we, we, you start reviewing those terms and thinking, yeah, that's not quite what I meant or quite what I needed that appropriate or reasonable skill and care to do. Um, and policing your compliance, which comes back to the um, the Zurich point. As Zurich had in place with their South African outsourcer, they had in place government governance, they had in place audit. Um, but I think what happened is the ICO said, uh, the FSA said, you had this all in place, but you never ever checked on it, you never operated it. And actually, I think they were they were kicked and fined predominantly not because they didn't have the clauses in place, but because they didn't work them through and actually use them. Um, so it's a bit of a whiz through, which I'll stop in a sec. Paul's just going to introduce the case study. Thanks everyone, don't worry, we'll let you break for coffee very soon. Um, after the break we're coming back to work through a case study, so on your desks hopefully you'll have a, a small problem um, with some typical corny legal puns on the top uh, about a laptop that's been lost and then a policy on the back um, which is a genericised policy but one we have seen in action. Um, I'll just read you briefly through the case study. So you're an in-house lawyer um, at a company which sells herbal remedies one of your contractors in marketing uh, left the office, worked in an internet cafe in the afternoon um, and lost a laptop and a Blackberry. The laptop was a company laptop, um, but the Blackberry was a personal one. Um, he reported it to his boss, who reported it to their boss a week later because he, he thought it might turn up and wanted to spend a week looking for it. Um, his boss, Mrs. Organise, reported it to you immediately. Um, both the BlackBerry and the laptop turn out to have our entire CRM database accessible, including names, addresses, bank details, and previous orders. Um, the laptop had a password, password, very imaginatively, 
um, as it hadn't been changed from the setting. The BlackBerry had no password or encryption. Um, and you, Mr. Leak, the, the man who owned or whose laptop it was, signed a standard laptop policy, which is on your desks. So what we're going to try and go through after the break is just work through what are the problems with the policy, do you think it works uh, or not, and, and if it doesn't work, what should be done to fix it. Thanks very much, everyone.